Please uh, stay standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. Jonah chapter 3. We'll be reading the entire chapter. Don, if you could turn me down a little bit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So it is uh, great to be with you all here this morning. It's great to have our youth back, our kids back. You only got them away for one week, so I'm sorry it couldn't be longer. Uh, but no, excited to have them back. Excited to be uh, before you here this morning um, teaching out of the book of Jonah. And speaking of children, I'm going to jump right in talking about one of mine. I kind of prefaced him that I was going to talk about this, but I was going to talk about Ethan this morning, our, our middle child. Um, if you know anything about Ethan, Ethan really savors the flavor of life. And what I mean by that is he's not really in a hurry with anything. Um, and one of those things that he's really not in a hurry with is eating. And he's been like that since the beginning. And so I had one parent uh, say this of, of kids eating, that it was like more like a hostage negotiation, trying to get your children to eat. Um, but ours has always been like, just go faster. You know, just eat your food. It's midnight. We want to go to bed. Um, but there's one aspect of Ethan that I really love is that where I'm in such a hurry to do, he's just kind of, he's analytical and thoughtful and he wants to know why. And I don't know about the why with eating part, that seems to be a little a bit of a mystery to me, but with life in general, he, he's very kind of slow and, and thoughtful in the things he does and why he does those things. And, and sometimes I'm very sinful in that, that I'm, just, I'm just in such a hurry to do and, and to get past and to go. Uh, but the other day we were, we were at the baseball park and uh, we were, yet in a hurry again, or at least I was. Noah's game was starting, Ethan's game was ending, so I was like, let's go, come on. I'm like, bring him along. And, uh, and so, God, in his divine providence, and he's continually doing this to me, that kind of struck me through the Holy Spirit and said, well, maybe it's not that he needs to hurry up to meet up with you, but that you need to slow down and go with him. Amen. Maybe you need to walk where he's walking and be with him and slow down a little bit instead of always being in such a hurry. 
and showing him, you know, kind of a maybe a not so responsible way of, of, of kind of walking through life. And what we see here as we look at Jonah here this morning that God is doing this in a way with us. Right? We're, we're in a, such a hurry. We're going to the ends of the earth in the opposite direction, and God is coming alongside us in his patience and grace, and he's kind of U-turning us back. You know? And that's what we see here with Jonah uh, throughout the book, but also here this morning as well, that God is coming alongside us, bringing us back to where uh, we need to be in his divine providence. And so our main theme this morning as we look at the third chapter of Jonah, it shows that God's gracious purpose always succeeds, although they often follow a path that is surprising to the human observer. So it's always like, how did I get here? Oh, well, God's in control. Okay, well, that makes sense. Um, but a, a kind of a verse theme outside of Jonah, if, if I'm allowed one here, but I have the mic, so I am, um, is 1 Corinthians 1.25, which says, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And I've always loved that verse, and I think it goes in well with life in and of itself, but obviously with, with the book of Jonah as well. And so our first point here this morning uh, is going to be the commission. The commission, a second chance to learn the scope of God's mercy. And so we know nothing about the moment in Jonah's life when he kind of rubbed his eyes and stretched out his hands uh, and to make sure that, you know, I'm really on dry ground here. I've really kind of landed. The only imagery I could conjure was, well, at first it was, for some reason, it was Pinocchio. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't, that's gotten lost in the whole Jonah story. Like, yeah, Pinocchio was in a whale. And, you know, you know, if Jonah had watched Pinocchio, he would just know that he just had to start a fire and he would have gotten spat back out. But, you know, we'll leave that story for a different day. Uh, but Castaway, I don't know if you've ever seen that with Tom Hanks. And obviously Tom Hanks goes through this uh, kind of, horrific crash, survives a crash, ends up uh, on an island, kind of destitute island, um, and you know, when the scene kind of opens as far as when he gets through that crash and everything, it's the, the lifeboat that he's on kind of pops, and he opens his eyes, and he's on this reef, and he ends up going into shore. And so I can imagine that as, as Jonah is kind of on the shore here, he's like, gosh, I survived, you know? So the previous 36 hours must have seemed like kind of an eternity uh, to Jonah, as it would for any of us. The nightmare encounter with the storm and the sailors and being pitched into the vastness of the open ocean, only to be swallowed up by a great fish. The mercy, which is mercy in and of itself, but obviously in that initial moment, obviously we saw last week with, uh, with Delon talking about Jonah's prayer, initially like, oh great, I'm in the, I'm in the ocean, now I'm in a big fish, what else is going to happen? Uh, but God had mercy in that. Uh, so for Jonah, what we see here is that he was a wiser and hopefully a better man than, than he had been merely hours before. To this changed man, though, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. And so we see this merciful repetition of God's commission uh, on Jonah. So when God reissues his call to Jonah in chapter 3, the same kind of prophetic word formula occurs that is found in verses 1 of chapter 1. But what catches our attention most is the word again. The term stands out initially because it's different from the introduction and the original commission. However, in other examples of scripture, we don't necessarily see this type of clarification, mercy, uh, reassurance extended to other prophets. Jonah is kind of rather unique among the prophets 
and he is receiving a second chance to obey here. Prophets were typically judged more quickly and severely precisely because of their special calling and privilege access to this revelation. We see this in Numbers 22, 1 Kings 13, Jeremiah 23, and James 3. As we have already noted, Jonah was given a second chance by God, just as God's people often receive a second, third, 77th chance. When they repent and call upon the Lord, we, as we see in Abraham, they received a second chance when he had stopped short of the promised land. We see this with Moses when he had murdered the Egyptian slave driver. Perhaps most poignantly, and a character that I always seem to kind of, uh, kind of buddy up to, is Peter. when He's given another chance after he had denied his Lord three times on the day of Jesus' arrest. But what an encounter and encouragement this is that God gives us second chances as we face our disobedience and our sin, as we repent and seek the Lord's grace again and again. Earlier, Jonah had refused to preach to Nineveh because he didn't think that they were really worthy of God's grace. They didn't deserve it. But what an education that Jonah got. What an education that we get through our life. I was with Andrea uh, a couple weeks ago in, in Franklin, and we were just kind of perusing through a shop, and I noticed a sign sitting on the floor, and it said, I never make the same mistake twice. I make it five or six times just to be sure. And I was like, oh, that is me. That is so me. Uh, you know, can never, can never just go, oh, I see, I see what you're doing here, God. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, I'm still going to keep going this way. Keep doing it again and again. But the principle by which God works is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. At times we may have turned from God's will. God may have dealt with us severely. We may have felt there's no hope for us, but if we are his children, we see these following principles here. Romans 8, 28, and we know that therefore, who love, those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So the all things here must mean all things, or it means nothing. All things here must mean everything, it means all things, or it means nothing. God works in our lives so that we may be ready for that moment when the word of the Lord comes to us a second time. Amen. What a beautiful picture of grace that is. Amen? Amen. So we see this clarification of the commission here by God to Jonah uh, as we look at verse 2 in chapter 3 and what it was in verse 2 in chapter 1. So the distinction between these, these two verses here uh, is one from condemnation to proclamation or condemning to proclaiming. God hints at the possible outcome or a foreshadowing of the clemency that he was going to show Nineveh. And we saw, we will see, and I don't want to steal any thunder from Justin, but we're, we, we've seen this story before. Um, we know how Jonah is going to react by God's grace. Um, but what we see here is a change in Jonah. We, we see Point two here, if you're taking notes, the, the compliance, right? We saw the commission first, now we see the compliance, a concession to God's mercy. So as in chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah rises in keeping with God's initial command. Arise, go. But as we've previously seen and previously discussed, Jonah went the opposite direction. This time, however, in, in verse 3 of chapter 3, Jonah rises to fulfill the commission set before him. So the prophet has a new direction. 
Hugh Martin says it this way, Jonah was about to enter, unprotected, a city whose inhabitants were preeminently wicked and violent, and he was to threaten them with the name of the Almighty with speedy and complete destruction. It was going, he was going into the lion's den, nothing but an implicit reliance on the presence and faithfulness, the power and the protection of God could possibly bear him through in the calmness and the courage befitting an ambassador of God. So it was by grace that Jonah obeyed the Lord, a grace that he learned in desperate prayer while he was in the belly of the great fish. So Jonah has a new direction, and now we see Jonah rejects his self-directed flight in favor of a God-directed journey. So he has a new direction, and he has the ultimate director. That was... <laughs> Once again, at the baseball park, our lives are like zeroed in in the baseball park for this last season. And um, I overheard uh, this, this family. I just heard this last part. I just thought it was funny. Um, I really wanted to like know the context around it, but I thought it'd be weird if I just went up like, hey, what are you really talking about? But they, they just said, take the wheel, Jesus. Like, that's all I heard it was take the wheel, Jesus. And I was like, oh, that, and I kind of laughed out loud a little bit, and they kind of stopped talking, and so I just kind of walked away. Um, <laughs> but, and, and, yeah, I just laugh at funny things. Anyway, um, you know, it, it just kind of made me think of, of, one, how often we really think that we're driving, uh, that we really actually have the wheel in these, these scenarios. It's like, oh, you know what, I've, I've, I've got the better plan. Like, with you know, I've got the better plan. Let's go this way. And then ultimately we find out, uh, I actually really wasn't driving at all. I, I kind of make it akin to like going to England and you think you're about to get into the driver's side and you're, you're kind of trying to beat the person going to the car and you end up getting on the left side, which in the United States obviously is the right side. Um, and you get in and you go to grab the wheel and there's nothing there and the passenger is kind of like grinning back at you and they start to, to go and you're like, who put the wheel on the wrong side of the car? You know? And so that's generally kind of how we default in those, those scenarios. But, but ultimately, like, I kind of, again, think of it in a way of how kind of God deals with us in, cer in certain ways. Really, we're getting into the, the wrong side of the car, the left side of the car where there is no wheel, and we have this little toddler wheel, and we think we're driving, and we think we're going, and we think we're doing the blinker, but really we're not going, we're kind of along for the ride. But really, we, we, we kind of kick and scream so much that God goes, okay, let's, let's go this way. I'm with you, I'm driving, but I'm going with you. And then ultimately he goes, okay, now we need to come back this direction. And so we see that again with Jonah, we see that with, with our lives uh, as well. And so point three here this morning, if you're again taking notes, um, is the response. So first the commission, second the compliance, and then the response. Responsiveness to and the responsiveness of God's mercy. And we'll spend the majority of the rest of our time here this morning. So Nineveh was not the capital of Assyria at this time, but it was a major center. As we saw in the introduction of the book by Pastor Tom, it was a place that was not a royal residence, but it did have royal palaces. Nineveh was in that time, about right around the 8th century BC, a large city and a wealthy city. It was, if you like, a major metropolitan area. And it was pagan in the extreme, and such an important city that a visit required three days. And so we're going to talk about this, the aspect of the three days that we see here in chapter 3 of Jonah, but 
Three days around the city kind of seems a bit of a stretch. Uh, the walls of Nineveh were extended sometime after Jonah to about 7.1 miles in circumference, but, but that doesn't seem likely as far as the three days are concerned here. Rather, one looks at Eastern etiquette in cities of significance and kind of the following applied for certain people coming to the city. For ambassadors and dipl diplomats, they kind of had to observe a certain protocol. For prophets kind of seen in this high regard and with a measure of superstition, you'd see them on the first day, as it were, they'd be kind of, would be the day of settlement and arrival. And the second day, which was a day of kind of a formal presentation to the authorities of the city, with the indication given to them as to kind of why they're there. Uh, and the third day, which may be the kind of conducting a business, and it may, in fact, be kind of the day of departure. Now, this, I think, kind of helps, helps us understand uh, that he was kind of not just wandering around for three days within Nineveh or on the outside of it, but rather he was in a royal city where due protocol had to be followed. And it was to this city of significance, to this great city as we see in Jonah, as we're told that God was giving gracious word of warning through his servant Jonah. And so Jonah preaches a message of warning. For, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Whether this is a verbatim quote or a greatly abbreviated summary of Jonah's witness to Nineveh, in either case, the message was direct, simple, and clear. Even if he spoke at great length, there could be no doubt about what he was saying. This is a warning of God's judgment, and it may not seem to be a very gracious message, as one can understand, until we realize what a blessing such a warning is. This is where the grace of the gospel properly begins, with warnings of God's certain judgment on us. There is always a great danger that Christians would be so concerned to win over their hearts that they would withhold the unpleasant reality of judgment for which the gospel is the answer. We need to know what we're being saved from. Our God-given task is simply and directly to teach God's word and truth to all who we encounter. God may use us and our testimony, our testimony as he pleases, but in all that we do, we are to follow as the Holy Spirit leads. And the Lord is faithful and true to save his sheep. The day of judgment may or may not be tomorrow, but it will certainly come at the definite time of God's appointment. Amen. Jesus has come in power of his death and resurrection, and if you will believe, the amazing grace of God will come to restore you, to change you, and then to use you to carry the message of this grace to others in the world. Was a quick story here. Found uh, myself at, at times, not at times, but at a specific time, and I think I brought this up before um, in some of our adult Sunday school lessons, kind of thinking through Jonah preaching this message of warning, thinking through about how this what our response is in, in this kind of scenarios, and sometimes we, we really struggle with really being uh, an outpouring of God's light uh, to those around us. Um, and one of those kind of failure moments for me, which I have a lot of, um, and obviously God is much bigger than me in, in my failures, but at VBS in Montana, 
having a great time, such a great time. Um, we go back to where we're staying, and uh, a gentleman comes up to us, just some, some gentleman comes up to us, me and a few of the other leaders, and he, we start talking to him and kind of getting to know him, and he goes, hey, what's that verse, that Psalms 25, 4 through 5 on the back of your shirt, what, what does that say? And <clears throat> I had no idea. <laughs> I could not remember for the life of me what it said. And so for some reason, I'm the one out front, and so I just looked at the other guys that were with me, and they just went like that, and I was like, thanks for the help. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I turned back to him, I rattled off some verse that was in, I don't even remember what it was. I just made up, I, made, I didn't make up a verse. I said a verse. I knew it wasn't the right one. And then I just went, I went halfway through it, and I just go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and he just went, okay. And he turned around and walked away. In that moment, I thought, wow, I just failed. Like, I failed in my witness. I failed as a Christian. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but God is bigger than my failure, right? And who says that I failed? I thought I failed, but God's like, you know what? One, I'm humbling you, because you're a little big-headed right now. And two, maybe I'm prepping this gentleman for, for another conversation down the road. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard in those failures, it's hard in those moments, but when we're called to preach God's word, you know, sometimes as we see it, it doesn't go well. But again, we serve a God that is so much bigger than that, and we just need to be consistent um, in our preaching of God's word and the gospel of Christ. And so we see Nineveh responds to Jonah's warning, to God's warning, with humble repentance. So one day, the citizens of Nineveh they kind of woke up thinking, today will be like every other day, like most of us do. They did not have the spiritual awareness to sense that the cloud of divine judgment was stretched across the city. But suddenly, through Jonah's words, they found a flood of light shining into their hearts with alarming power and conviction. They saw divine judgment over their heads, and they began to cry out to God for mercy. A total reversal took place in their thinking. Instead of complacency and indifference, their hearts were stirred to pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A biblical definition of, of repentance, as we look at it here, has at least three vital elements. First, a sorrowful mourn, mourning over sin. A sorrowful mourning over sin. We see this pretty clearly uh, from the Ninevites, from the greatest of these to the least. We see fasting first, which has several, several biblical purposes, one of which is a public expression of penance. Second, we see is the putting on of sackcloth. Sackcloth was a coarse and rough cloth used for making, you guessed it, sacks, which normally only the poorest of people wore. So like fasting, sackcloth expressed lament, grief, humiliation. We also see an example from the king here in Jonah 3, who sat in ashes, taking off his rich and costly robes, donning sackcloth, and then sat in ashes in an ultimate display of self-humiliation. Second, we see a turning from sin. The first, a sorrowful mourning over sin. Second, we see a turning from sin. J.A. Packer writes, Repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. Amen. So verse 8a, if you will, says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So the Hebrew word here for turn in Jonah is shuv. And I'm no 
Hebrew expert, so you're just going to have to bear with my Hebrew here. But it means shuv, and it means to return or turn back. So what we seem to be witness here is Nineveh, one of the most notoriously violent cities in its day, along with their king, acknowledges their evil ways, calling the people to renounce their what they now understand to be sin. Thirdly, we see, as far as repentance is concerned, that it culminates in a turning to God in renewed faith. So again, verse 8, Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. And let them call out mightily to God. So the king was summoning the people to pray to God of Jonah for mercy. So the biblical text doesn't tell us that God sent Jonah with purpose to convert the populace here or to have a, a covenant relationship with them. Rather, he was warning them about their evil, their evil, violent behavior and the inevitable consequences if they did not relent and change. But they believed God, as verse 5 tells us. They believed God. They believed the message that God was bringing to them through Jonah. They listened to the warning. The response was pointed heavenly by their wearing of the garments of penance. Here we understand just why it is that Jesus said to the people of his day, as we see in Luke chapter 11, that the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment and condemn you because they listened to the preaching of another prophet called Jonah and responded and you have listened to the preaching of one greater, i.e. Jesus, than Jonah, and you chose not to respond. Verse 9 here says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So we see that the king saying this after he's calling his people to repent to lay prostrate, as it were, before the Lord in all things. He's saying, who knows? Who knows? In other words, he's recognizing that because they repent, it is not automatic that God will be forgiving in his reaction. There's no definite indication that their turning in repentance will be accompanied by a divine turning. He says, but you never know. God may actually respond in this way. It's a reminder to us of this. But the repentant, repentant have no case to argue for acceptance. And the future well, well-being of the repentant remains solely dependent on the grace of God. Now, I think that's hard for us to swallow sometimes. It's hard to swallow for me at times. One quote here by Colin Smith says it this way, Mercy is God's gift. It's not our right. Mercy is God's gift. It's not our right. Why is this such an affront? Why was this such an affront to me? Why does this kind of gnaw at our individuality? Why does this kind of press into our autonomy? Because through our sinful pride, we make so much of our own freedom and so little God's. And I think that is a really hard truth for us sometimes. And more specifically, it's a hard truth for me. So let's just think about it for a minute. If God were under an obligation to say, save everybody, he would no longer be God because the law higher than himself would bind him. Again, Colin Smith says mercy would no longer be mercy because being required, it would no longer be freely given. So we see that salvation, as it says in Romans 9.16, does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. 
We are saved not because we had a desire to be saved or because we made, again, an effort to do it. Our salvation flows from, God's, from God mercifully intervening in our life and moving us to faith and repentance. A couple of verses here for us to go over as a reminder of this truth. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 3, be in verses 11 and 12 to start. Romans chapter 3, 11 and 12. It says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We go down to Romans 3, 23. For this is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of whom one of, of the one whom has faith in Jesus. And so we see that God accepts here in Jonah their repentance and relents from the judgment they deserve. How can we understand this? If you have a King James a Bible or version, it says that God repented. God repented. When we think of repenting, we think of something done wrong. Right? We think of someone turning away. So did, is, did God do something wrong? God can never do something wrong. It's not within his character. He cannot sin. The Hebrew, again, the Hebrew word here for repent or relent is nacham. If I just spit on you, I apologize. But the definition of this Hebrew word is, in a favorable sense, to be sorry or to have compassion or fitting with the context of, of this verse and with Jonah as a whole, God had pity. God had pity on the Ninevites. He has pity on Jonah. He has pity on us. So we're still struggling with this. The Old Testament affirms that God, again, is unchanging, right? And yet at the same time, it affirms that he can and does alter his attitude towards people uh, and his way of dealing with them. 1 Samuel, if you would, 1 Samuel 15, 11, another verse for us to look at. First <clears throat> uh, Samuel 15 verse 11 says, I regret, again this is the Lord talking, the Lord came to Samuel and says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commands. He regrets, or another way of, of reading this is that the Lord grieved. So it kind of looks, when you're looking at verse 11, like God is changing his mind. If you turn the page or go down to verse uh, 29, it says, And he, the glory of Israel, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. It's like, okay, that clears it up for me. Um, so when we look at this, it, there's, there's, there's ultimately no inconsistency with God, right? To our eyes, it looks very inconsistent. But there's no inconsistency between these two modes of expression. John Mackey writes, 
when God is said to change his mind, matters are viewed from our human perspective. It appears to us that, we, that there has been a change in God, but what has in fact changed is our human conduct. So in other words, Saul was no longer the man he had once been. We know the story very well. You know, Saul was in God's favor. He was the king of Israel. And then God's favor moved to David. And Saul was not having that. That was a front to him. His power, his authority was now going to be in check by God. And he was going to go after the one that basically took it from him and tried to kill him, which was David. And so we see that God's hand had moved off of Saul as a result of what he had done here. And he had now become this kind of, in this persistently disobedient person. The Ninevites in reverse had also changed their conduct, but in the opposite direction. They had turned away from evil, and so God would have been inconsistent in his attitude toward them had he responded in the same way despite the change in their behavior. That would have been inconsistent. It is precisely because God is unchanging that we are encouraged to repent. God is unfailing in both his wrath against sin and his mercy towards faithful repentance. There is no variation in his opposition to wickedness. Thus, we always call to repent for our sin and of our sin. There is no variation in his delight in receiving sinners who call on the name of the Lord and lay hold of his mercy through faith in his word. So let's kind of lay on this plane as we say a lot here. God will and must judge the wickedness of the world. God will and must visit your sins with the fire of his wrath. But, but he has sent his own son into the world to bear the sins of those who believe. Jesus offers forgiveness to all who believe, repent, and seek his saving grace. This is the message that Christians must preach, and the witness that Christians live must present. So let the ministry here of Jonah stand as an encouragement to proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Father, what a great word from you here this morning. Father, I pray for our humility to see and to do as you have called us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy on us, a sinner. We see great mercy from you, Lord, in your dealing with the Ninevites, a seemingly, a seemingly unsavable people to our eyes. But nothing is out of the scope of your love, compassion, and grace. We thank you for showing us your compassion and love for Jonah. It's amazing the things that you have through your word and that you proclaim to us through your word and how we as human beings continually stumble and fall and make the same mistakes over and over again. Forgive us of our selfishness. Forgive us of our waywardness. Father, we thank you for your mercy this day and each day. And I pray, Lord, be with our church family. Guide them and direct them through this life. Help us to come along each other, to be there for each other in the moments when life is most difficult. Holy Spirit, be with us. We thank you and love you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.